0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 6, The Creative Curve. Think of the first famous person you know of named Lisa. Who did you think of? Lisa Marie Presley? Lisa Kudrow from Friends, Lisa Bonnet from The Cosby Show, maybe maybe the comedian Lisa Lampanelli. I've asked this question to audiences ranging from teenagers to Fortune 500 executives, and I usually get one of the above answers. Lisa from The Simpsons does not count. All the Lisas I mentioned share one trait. They were born in the 1960s. According to the Social Security Administration, Lisa was the number one name for newborn girls in the United States throughout most of the 1960s. Suddenly, it seemed that every parent of a new baby girl was calling their little sweet bundle of joy, Lisa. As the decades passed, Lisa lost favor. By 2016, Lisa had dropped to 833rd on the new on the name popularity list. That year, only 342 newborn girls in the entire United States were named Lisa. The New York Times magazine even ran an article entitled, Where Have All the Lisa's Gone? The phenomenon is not particular to Lisa. Research in fact shows that there is often a bell-shaped curve to describe the popularity of a given name, one that illustrates when names first come into favor, reach a peak of popularity, and tumble to relative obscurity. Why is it that things, and not just names, fall in and out of style? Feeling exposed. During World War II, Robert Zajonk escaped from a German labor camp. Recaptured, he was sent to a prison in France where he escaped again and joined the French resistance. But this is less a story of a famous escape artist than it is a narrative about one of the world's most revered social psychologists. After the war, and armed with a well deserved sense of self of sense of confidence, Zajonc decided to study psychology. He ended up earning his PhD at the University of Michigan and devoted the rest of his life to working to understand what drives human behavior, publishing many foundational studies on the topic. One critical experiment Zajonk conducted was in 1968 at the University of Michigan. He recruited students and told them that they would be participating in a language learning experiment. But this was just a cover for the true intentions. He began by showing his students fake Chinese characters that he claimed signified various adjectives. Next, he proceeded to show each character to his study subjects at various frequencies. Some characters he kept to himself, and others he showed as many as 25 times. Finally, Zazhank asked each volunteer to guess how positive or negative the definition of each adjective was. That is, did it represent a good trait or a bad trait, and how much they liked it. Keep in mind that the Chinese characters Zajank was showing his study subjects had really no meaning in Chinese whatsoever. They were made up. But what Zajonc found was would have a seismic impact on our understanding of people's tastes and preferences. He discovered that there was a near seamless linear relationship between familiarity and how positive people thought something was and how much they liked it. The more someone had seen a fake Chinese character, the more they preferred it. In other words, mere exposure to one of the Chinese characters made the respondents in the study perceive it more positively. Zajonk later called this phenomenon the mere exposure effect. His findings have since been well-documented across a wide variety of fields, ranging from nonsense words, yes, this is an actual academic term, to art and advertising. The more familiar something is, the more we like it. If seeing something more makes you like it more, how can we use that to create hits? I'll explore that further in the pages ahead, but first I wanted to understand the why behind this, the mere exposure effect. Why does this vivid pattern occur? To answer this, I talked to a researcher at the University of Virginia who studied the mere exposure effect in a more serious context, racism. The learning potential of racism. Racism often seems like an unsolvable problem. The United States fought a bloody civil war over slavery and nearly a century later, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people marched in the 1960s in protests against institutionalized racism. Yet today, racism is still a part of the global dialogue. From structural racism racism, to implicit bias to explicit prejudice, societies all across the globe have been unable to rid the world of racism. What if neuroscience could, if not help reduce racism, then at least help us understand it? Researchers Leslie Zebrovitz and Yi Zhang at Brandeis University wanted to understand whether Zajonk's mere exposure effect could be used against race-based biases. What would happen if they showed respondents the faces from other ethnicities over and over? As part of their study, they decided to focus on the orbit- orbitofrontal cortex, which is tied to the reward system of our brains. It drives two different reflexes that help our brains assess a situation before we take action. Specifically, the orbitofrontal cortex's role is to tell us whether we're better off approaching or avoiding a person, a place, or a thing. Consider first the approach reflex, which can be measured by observing activity in our brain's medial Orbital orbitofrontal cortex. When this area of the brain is activated, your motor system eggs you on to engage with someone or something. As Dr. Zhang put it, quote, in a gambling setting, if you start to win money, the medial orbitofrontal cortex is where it activates the most because it registers positive reward, end quote. Next, consider the avoidance reflex, which scientists measure by observing activation of the lateral orbitofrontal cortex. When this region is activated, our brains tell our bodies to run away to avoid the possibility of a negative outcome. The stronger the activation, the more pronounced the feeling. Still using the gambling example, Dr. Zhang explains, quote, when you start to lose money, the lateral orbitofrontal cortex is the region that activates more because that's when you feel bad about the situation, end quote. Still, the question remains, how does the mere exposure effect work? As we are exposed to something over and over again, does our approach reflex increase or does your avoidance reflex decrease? Or, as Dr. Zhang puts it, again, quote, Is it because we start to feel better about those stimuli or is it because we start to feel less bad about them? End quote. To find out, Dr. Zhang and her team conducted an FMRI study of 16 white men and 16 white women. An fMRI machine is different from an MRI machine, as the former lets the scientists see the changing activations of the brain by measuring blood flow. It can show where activations are happening, while a traditional MRI shows only the size of the various parts of the brain. Each participant was exposed, exposed to pictures drawn from a collection of black faces, Korean faces, written Chinese characters, and random shapes. These pictures were shown different numbers of times to the study participants, with some pictures never shown and others shown many times. Next, the researchers put each participant into the fMRI machine and exposed them to 40 images they'd never seen before and 20 that they had. The idea was to see how and where the brain would react. What the scientists found was that for the images the participants hadn't seen before, the the unfamiliar ones, the avoidance reflex in their brains was activated. Simply put, people were afraid of the unknown. More than just for faces, the same effect occurred when respondents were exposed to unfamiliar shapes and Chinese characters. It seems that humans have evolved to fear the unknown because it signals potential harm. If an early caveman spotted an unfamiliar species of red lizard under a bush in the forest, they might have been tempted to eat it. But over the millennia, evolution has primed our brains to signal avoidance, as that unknown lizard could, in fact, be lethal. Today, the sight of an unknown lizard triggers our avoidance reflex and makes us want to race back to camp rather than eat the red reptile. However, simple familiarity reduces this avoidance. Consider that the study subjects' avoidance reflex was significantly reduced when they were exposed to the same faces, shapes, and characters that they'd seen before going into the fMRI machine. The more we are exposed to something, the less we fear it. Dr. Zhang also observed another surprising effect. Quote, what we found is that once our our participants had been exposed to a prototypical Korean face, they start to show less adverse reactions to the other faces in the same racial category. End quote. Familiarity was actually able to reduce race-based biases. So what about the approach reflex? interestingly with increased familiarity it neither changed nor increased familiarity does not make us like things more rather it makes us fear things less this is one reason why we typically enjoy our own home people and objects that are familiar feel safe we may not particularly like that old chair we inherited from our grandmother it's not that great to sit in and it clearly needs to be reupholstered but it gives us comfort to have it around back to an earlier point though If it's true that familiarity breeds comfort, why did the name Lisa lose popularity over time? Why wouldn't more and more parents name their daughters Lisa until one day we all woke up living in Lisa land? Love kills slowly. Don Ed Hardy was a tattoo artist for years, was best known for the Japanese inspired designs he inked on bodies at Tattoo City, the San Francisco studio he opened in 1977. One day, he got a call from Christian Aldiger, Aldiger, the businessman behind the trendy Von Dutch clothing brand. Audigier had seen one of Hardy's designs and wanted to take it mainstream. He asked Hardy about signing a license to build a brand around his art. Hardy researched Audigier, and he later told one interviewer, quote, "'This guy is at ground zero of everything that's wrong "'with contemporary civilization.'" Quote. Nonetheless, the desire for, ex- for greater exposure won out. Hardy said, I just wanted to get paid and to be left alone. In short order, Audigier got the master license of Hardy's artwork and brand. Audigier embarked on a deliberate strategy of getting celebrities to wear the new Ed Hardy brand of clothing. He wanted the brand to become the epitome of Hollywood chick and to be seen by all. The particular marketing strategy led to one of the biggest fads of the decade. In 2009, it was impossible to turn on the television without seeing a celebrity wearing a T-shirt plastered with skulls and mottos like death before dishonor and love kills slowly. Very suddenly, Ed Hardy was a household name. That same year, the Ed Hardy brand sold $700 million in clothing and accessories. Familiarity had created a fortune. The novelty bonus. Have you ever noticed that when the new iPhone comes out, the old one suddenly seems less attractive? If you are more comfortable with things that are familiar, why would this be? Shouldn't everyone be carrying vintage iPhones from 2008 or the pink Motorola Razor flip phone from 2004? Another study conducted by Zajonk provides the answer. Zizhank teamed up with several other researchers to investigate how his mere exposure theory works in the art world. As people see a painting multiple times, will they continue to like it more, the same way as Zhang's original respondents did when exposed to fake Chinese adjectives? First, imagine you saw an abstract painting as you made your way through an art museum. Now imagine you had to walk by it five more times. Do you think seeing it repeatedly would change your opinion of the work? What if you saw it 10 times, 25 times? Seeking an answer to this question, the researchers showed reproductions of different paintings, like the one above, to students either 0, 1, 2, 5, 10, or 25 times. The students were asked to pay the closest possible attention to the paintings. Afterward, they had to rate each painting on a 7-point scale from I dislike it to I like it. If you recall Zajonc's original study, you might expect that with each additional view, the preferences of study subjects would increase as they unconsciously grew to fear the paintings less. Instead, the paintings that the students had seen 25 times were about 15% less liked than the ones subjects were seeing for the first time. In short, the students preferred the novel paintings more than the ones that were familiar. In this case, exposure reduced their liking for the paintings. This goes against the previous Zajonk study. In this newer study, novelty was preferred to familiarity. Why were the results different? To understand this, one first has to delve into the role of the brain's neurotransmitter, dopamine. Dopamine is one of the most misunderstood and frankly overhyped chemicals in the brain. Avid readers of pop psychology books or any books sold in airports have undoubtedly heard mention of dopamine, and it is generally portrayed as the pleasure neurotransmitter. Countless keynote speakers have suggested companies need to trigger dopamine in their customer's brain to drive gratification and addiction. But this view of dopamine isn't strictly true. In contrast to what the popular media might have us believe, dopamine plays a much more nuanced role in the brain. To find out more, I called Emrad Duzel, a neuroscientist at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London, known for his study of motivation. Duzel explained why the popular notion of dopamine makes no sense. You can prevent dopamine activity in someone's brain and they will still find pleasure in things. When researchers block the dopamine receptors of drug addicts, the the addicts still consume, enjoy and crave drugs. So what's really going on? Quote, dopamine is not so much about the pleasure of consuming something, it's about the motivation to obtain something that's signaled by dopamine. End quote, explains Duzel, The actual role of dopamine in our brains, he says, is to determine when we should approach something to learn more about it. Duzel explained that dopamine signals to our motor system that we have to do something, and only then does it trigger the learning process. Dopamine, in short, is not the pleasure neurotransmitter. It is the motivation neurotransmitter. Duzel wanted to study what the role of novelty was on our brain's dopamine levels. To do this, he partnered with fellow British researcher Nico Boonjek for a multi-step experiment. First, Duzel and Boonzek showed volunteers a series of photos of people's faces. The volunteers then went inside an fMRI machine where they were exposed to even more pictures, including images they'd seen before mixed with novel, never-before-seen never images. Bunjek and Duzel next measured the responses in the motivation center of respondents' brains, known as the midbrain which plays a significant role in determining dopamine levels. The more the motivation center of our brain is activated, the higher our dopamine levels and the more motivated we are to explore and to learn. What, what Bunchek and Dizel found was that novelty activated the brain's motivation centers. Novelty releases dopamine and encourages us to pay attention and find out more about what's in front of us. Why? Imagine that you are a prehistoric cave dweller who comes across a field you've never seen before. It would benefit you, from an evolutionary perspective, to be motivated enough to explore this unfamiliar territory, as it could be a new source of food. Scientists call this a novelty bonus, and it's why we pursue and enjoy novel things, whether it's a new car, a new phone, or new food. Thus, the activation is the brain's reaction to the potential rewards that may or may not exist whenever we confront novel situations and objects. But now we're faced with an obvious contradiction. We are motivated by novelty and also fearful of the unfamiliar. How then do we balance our interests with our apprehension? Part of the answer can be found by visiting a psychology lab in Canada. There, a team of researchers decided to see what happened when people were forced to listen to the same song over and over. The Creative Curve Researchers at the University of Toronto and the University of Montreal were curious to understand how the contradictory fear of the unknown and the pursuit of novelty worked in music. Does the mere exposure effect exist when we sit down and listen to a song? Professor Glenn Schellenberg, the team's lead researcher, explained to me why, prior to the study, he thought it might, saying, quote, Often you hear something, and it's only in the second or third time listening where you say, Oh, I really like that song, end quote. He also wanted to figure out what role novelty and overfamiliarity play in our love of, or aversion to, a piece of music, especially the latter. Quote, We were interested in being able to document another phenomenon, the one that people get really sick of music after they've overheard it. You know, like the Macarena or maybe Hotline Bling. end quote. To put bluntly, why do we l- learn to love certain songs and get sick and tired of others? In an attempt to answer this question, Schellenberg and his team placed 108 undergraduate students in a soundproof booth alongside a computer and a pair of headphones. The team then played the students half a dozen song clips, The team didn't just use each clip at once, they played two clips 32 times, another two clips 8 times, and the last two clips twice. Afterward, the students were asked to rate how much they liked each clip, and also weighed in on various clips they'd never heard before. If you believe that our brains pursue novelty at all times, you would also expect that every time students heard a song, they would like it less and less. At the same time, if you believe that people fear the unknown and crave what's familiar, this means that every time students heard the song, they would have loved it more and more. But neither happened. When listening listening intently to the music, the students' enjoyment of the music followed a bell-shaped curve. From the second to the eighth time they were exposed to each song, the students reported liking it more. From the eighth time to the 32nd time, they they liked the song less every time they heard it. Similar to the results of Zajonk's painting experiment, by the final time they heard a song they actually liked, the song noticeably less than they did when they first heard it. It turns out that the human pursuit of both familiarity and novelty results in a bell-shaped curve relationship between preference and familiarity. We like songs more and more with each additional exposure until they reach a peak, at which point they become overexposed. From that point on, each additional listen makes us like them less and less. I call this bell-shaped curve, the creative curve. The creative curve describes a personal phenomenon tied to one person's familiarity. So what happens when an entire population of people is exposed to a particular song, movie, or product? This is where the study of trends becomes important. A dose of reality don ed hardy found out the power of trends the hard way he told the new york post that at the peak of his brand's popularity quote it got surreal i would go into a store to get a magazine and see an ed hardy lighter at one point there were 70 sub licenses quote after 2009 however the popularity of ed hardy clothing plummeted suddenly ed hardy shirts were a glo- were a gaudy cliche Don Ed Hardy believes that the reality star John Gosselin's obsession with wearing the brand on the show John and Kate Plus 8 was the final blow. Quote, that's what tanked it. Macy's used to have a huge window display with Ed Hardy, and it filtered down, and that's why Macy's dropped the brand. End quote. By 2016, the brand was gasping for air. How did a brand climb as high as it did, then tumble so far down? Google provides researchers with a tool that shows the number of people who search for a particular phrase over time. It's a good way to observe in time some of the country's and the world's most popular trends. What happens when we plug in the words Ed Hardy? Beginning in 2005, peaking in 2009, the brand underwent a dazzling rise. Then it all came crashing down. Notice anything? It's another bell-shaped curve. It turns out that while the creative curve maps an individual's preference, it also shows a group level effect. As various people are exposed independently to something at different rates, overall, the group at large, the masses, reflects the same behavior. For example, in clothing, fashionistas see brands earlier than mainstream people, but they also tire of them earlier. The result is that around the same time a mainstream individual is just starting to get interested in Ed Hardy, the so-called hip people are already tired of it. The Ed Hardy brand, along with the name Lisa and countless other phenomena, became so popular that it reached what I call the point of cliche, where novelty seeking peters out at a group level. The brand in question becomes overexposed and overfamiliar, and each additional exposure reduces a group's overall interest in the product, idea, or concept. Okay, so law of diminishing returns. Understanding both the creative curve and the point of cliche is critical to knowing how to achieve mainstream success. You want ideas that are familiar enough to increase the chances of widespread adoption, and that at the same time, create enough of a novelty bonus to drive interest. Think back to the Froyo craze that peaked in 2011. Froyo, or frozen yogurt, was similar to ice cream, both visually and texture-wise, and therefore familiar, But it was also tart tasting, and supposedly healthier for you than ice cream, making it novel and different. Consider too the popularity of the sushi burrito trend, enormous sushi rolls that you can eat with your hands, that appeared coast to coast. Sushi is familiar to many, and the sushi burrito was simply a novel twist on something we already recognize. This and other ideas are successful because they're rooted in what we already know, but intriguing enough to stimulate our brain's approach region. Thanks to the widespread cultural belief in the inspiration theory of creativity, many people le- believe that the key to popularity is to come up with innovative, radically novel ideas. The problem is, this can result from in ideas that are too far to the left of the creative curve. These ideas aren't well-timed. They are too new, too different. They're not familiar enough. A novelist risks ending up with a book that no one likes, a songwriter with a melody that everyone hates, and a startup with no users. In the best case, you were Herman Melville writing Moby Dick, a work that failed to resonate with readers until decades after the author's death. In the worst case, you spend years creating something radically innovative that almost no one is interested in. A good novel needs more than novelty. It also needs a bit of familiarity. This is true across all types of creativity. Andre Bishop is the producing artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, and to date, the recipient of 15 Tony Awards. Vanity Fair has called him the perfect gentleman of New York theater. He and I met in his office off the labyrinthine hallways concealed within the Lincoln Center complex. Bishop looks like a man who wears a suit to any and all functions. He's dapper in the most traditional sense of the word, he explains how timing is essential in theater. Quote, certain plays and musicals hit the zeitgeist at the moment. I think a show like Hamilton, especially when it first arrived, hit the zeitgeist of what was going on, especially in New York. That simply wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. End quote. This doesn't mean that Hamilton's success comes down only to timing. Bishop explains that a good play or musical also must be written by a first-rate writer, directed by a first-rate director, beautifully cast with excellent actors and scenery that fulfills the aim of the play. Key to understanding commercial success, then, is understanding the nuances of the creative curve. Good execution is necessary, but it's not enough. Success requires that any creative work resonate with today's audience, otherwise you will wait for an audience that may never appear. When less is more. In early 2004, a social network was launched at an Ivy League university. Created by students, it was among the first social networks to use people's real names, and it spread like a contagion. Seeing the potential, the team took a leave of absence from their studies to focus full-time on the startup. But this isn't the story of Facebook. It's the story of Campus Network, a social network launched at Columbia University mere weeks before Facebook became a phenomenon at Harvard. Campus Network was founded by Adam Goldberg, the class president of the School of Engineering, and Wayne Ting, the class president of Columbia College. Not only was the Campus Network launched a few weeks earlier than Facebook, it was also dramatically more advanced. The original version of Facebook was little more than a virtual directory, complete with pages devoted to basic profiles, friends, and poking. Many of the features that would eventually make Facebook a media disruptor, such as photo sharing, the wall, and the activity feed, came much later. Campus Network not only started with photo sharing and a wall where members could comment on their friends' profiles, its activity feed made it possible for anyone to see what was happening across the entire network, just like Facebook's future newsfeed feature. After going live in the spring of 2004, Goldberg and Ting moved to Montreal to work full-time on Campus Network, while the Facebook team moved to Silicon Valley to do the same. In the fall, the Campus Network team embarked on an all-out war against Facebook, launching the site in other Ivy League schools while also making forays into Big 12 schools, which at that point had never heard of Facebook. Along the way, school papers picked up on, and began devoting articles to, the rivalry. Once Campus Network launched at Stanford University, Stanford Daily asked one student, Ava Colon, about the differences between the two. Facebook, Colon replied, was inferior, quote, there is no community whatsoever, it's more like a classified section. You can build relationships and express your personality on Campus Network whereas Facebook only allows you to add friends and stock crushes, end quote. But for all its advanced features, Campus Network stalled and ultimately failed. Outside of Columbia University, Goldberg and Ting were not able to com- compete seriously against Facebook anywhere. Eventually, feeling defeated, Ting returned to school in the spring of 2005, and Goldberg joined him the following semester. Why did Campus Network flop? Why aren't the names of Adam Goldberg and Wayne Ting emblazoned in the public consciousness? If the site offered more advanced features from the start, ones, I might add, that later contributed to Facebook's enormous success, why did they not work for Campus Network? It comes back to the creative curve. Wayne Ting's startup experience gave him valuable perspective on how consumers welcome, or dismiss, new ideas. Looking back, Ting now realizes that the sheer density of features contained in his app, which he assumed would leapfrog Campus Network over Facebook, was actually a core reason it failed. How, though? Ting told me that, at the time, people held radically different views about digital identity and privacy. In the early 2000s, we still used pseudonyms and nondescriptive usernames online. Campus Network asked users not only to put aside pseudonyms and use their real names, but also to share photos and updates with their network. Says Ting, quote, we were asking them to take too many leaps at once, end quote. Facebook, by contrast, added more features in a gradual way as users became more and more comfortable sharing information online. David Kirkpatrick, a technology journalist and the author of The Facebook Effect, remembers how barren early Facebook was. Quote, it was essentially nothing other than a place to put a profile and to connect with other people. Ting told a BBC interviewer, continuing, "What Facebook did was that was incredibly smart was to hook them with the friending and the poking, and then they learned with their users and added functionality slowly over time as users became more comfortable. In essence, without necessarily being aware of what they were doing, Mark Zuckerberg and his Facebook team were following the creative curve." they were balancing the familiar with the novel. Something too novel risked scaring people off, whereas something too familiar wouldn't drive any interest. In David Kirkpatrick's book, The Facebook Effect, Zuckerberg is quoted as telling the author that, quote, the trick isn't adding stuff, it's taking away, end quote. Campus Network co-founder Adam Goldberg agreed, quote, Facebook trained their audience to use the site very slowly, without being overwhelming, end quote. Over the next few years, Facebook slowly rolled out more and more public social features. Occasionally, there was pushback in response to a new launch. For example, when the site rolled out its news feed, the news feature shared users' Facebook activity with their entire social network. The public nature of this caused a public relations backlash, but Facebook persisted. In fact, Facebook had a secret ingredient that helped them master the creative curve. Data. As David Kirkpatrick explained to me, users may have been complaining about the newsfeed, but they were complaining about it on the newsfeed. Quote, time and again they would see that usage data contradicted what users said. They might protest a new feature, but they used it, end quote. Matt Kohler, one of Facebook's first five employees and later a VP of product management there, explained during a lecture at Stanford in 2008 that one of the unique things about Facebook has been that audience usage went up year after year. Usually, consumer startups shed users over time as they become less novel. But Facebook's usage metrics consistently increased, in part because Facebook pushed new features that were at the right right point of the creative curve. These innovations were familiar enough to feel comfortable, but at the the same time novel enough to pique continued interest and encourage user engagement. Looking back on the experience, Ting feels mixed emotions. I think it's really hard not to look at this with some amount of regret and maybe some amount of jealousy. How often do you get brushed by a billion-dollar idea? On the other hand, he and Goldberg also feel a lot of pride. Ting says, quote, even if you were just a minor bit player in the history of social networking, we played a part. End quote. What would have happened if Campus Network had launched its app with fewer features? After all, it had a head start, a smart Ivy League team, and a, a determination to grow. It's hard to answer that question, but we do know this much. Campus Network didn't altogether understand what its audience wanted. It did not grasp the creative curve. Being able to balance familiarity and novelty isn't just useful for creating fortunes. It is essential. Getting fluent. The question is, how and why did users eventually come to accept Facebook's modules? Why did the exact same features that sank Campus Network later help turn Facebook into the juggernaut it is today? You can break it down like this. As we discussed, when we first come face-to-face with something novel, like a book, a TV show, an app, or a radically new antiperspirant, both the approach and the avoidance reflexes are activated in our brains. The unfamiliar makes us fearful. It may well harm us. But our desire to explore and learn about new things is also triggered at the very same time. When most of us experience something new, for the first few encounters, we, our avoidance reflex run away, overwhelms our desire to approach. Check this out. The result for most of us is that we back away, the goal being to protect ourselves from whatever that new thing is. This means an idea that is too novel has a much harder time appealing to a broad audience. It may well appeal to fringe communities, think hipsters in Williamsburg or goths in suburban malls, but the mass population of suburban parents won't go near it. Over time, our avoidance reflex is activated less and less often as we learn that this new thing won't harm us. At this point, the novelty bonus begins to outweigh our avoidance reflex. Our fear begins to dissipate. We start wondering if this new thing, or experience, could potentially be useful or valuable. Once this happens, we start to express liking that thing increasingly every single time we see or experience it. This upward slope is what I call the sweet spot of the creative curve. Ideas in this region of the curve are familiar enough to be comfortable, yet novel enough to compel our ongoing attention. Eventually, as the novelty bonus deteriorates, we become less and less interested in what's in front of us. After all, we can no longer gain a big potential reward. As Dr. Duzel, who carried out the dopamine experiment, explained to me, quote, Once you learn about an environment and it becomes familiar, then the novelty bonus decays over time, end quote, which is another way of saying that it reaches the point of cliché. Is there life after the point of cliché? Yes, but it's the equivalent of the dark side of the moon. After reaching the point of cliché, many ideas become what I call a follow-on failure. If you opened a cupcake shop in 2015, soon after the cupcake craze had peaked, Yes, you might have had one busy year, but very likely you will soon experience a sudden drop in popularity, if you haven't already. Finally, once an idea is out of date and no longer popular, it is nonsensical to pursue it. If you opened a store devoted to disco in, the early, toth- in early 2018, you may well have a- attracted a tiny audience of cultural laggards, but nothing more. The individuals who ultimately became known as creative geniuses know to abandon ideas long before they ever reach this point. It's worth noting that the creative curve shouldn't be mistaken for another famous curve, the technology adoption cycle. In this model, as time passes, technology goes from 0% adoption to 100%. There are two fundamental differences between the two. For one thing, the creative curve is based on exposure rather than on time. Second, creative ideas start as unpopular, become successful, then end up unpopular again. Seldom, if ever, do creative ideas remain at high popularity, unlike useful technology, such as the zipper, that remains nearly universally adopted. By this point you might be wondering, if the creative curve is able to explain how the tension between familiarity and novelty affects our preferences, how, then, are we able to account for the original Zajonc experiment I wrote about earlier with the fake Chinese adjectives, where study subjects professed to like those characters more and more with every additional exposure? In response, researchers have two explanations. The first is that the, that the experiment might have been lacking enough exposures to trigger the boredom effect that we see in the downward slope of the creative curve. The second and more likely explanation is that researchers believe that how you and I process a concept is vital to how we learn to like or dislike it. For example, in the Canadian music study mentioned earlier, it turned out that the bell curve happened only when students were asked to listen to the music intently. If the music was played faintly in the background, the students often kept on liking the song more and more as they heard it over and over, with no apparent end. So why is this? It turns out that when we consume something superficially, whether it's an advertisement, song, or work of art, our brains process it in a different way than they do when we consume something in depth or over time. A process that neuroscientists call perceptual fluency takes hold. It works like this. The first time we see or experience something, our brains have to work hard to process it. However, if we've already, already experienced that thing, we are naturally more fluent in it, and our brains can process it more effe- efficiently. The thing is, typically we tend to confuse this ease of processing with actual liking. When you think about it, it's a lot easier for us to process a song we've heard overhead in the supermarket or drugstore a 100 or so times. Along the way, we tend to mistake ease with actual enjoyment. Advertising researcher Christy Nordheim has studied this effect in advertising. She found that if a print ad repeatedly displayed a small or superficial feature, a background, or a logo, people reported liking the product in question more every time they saw it. This is why marketers deem logos and brand colors as essential to creating and maintaining consumer goodwill. The little things make it a lot easier for our brains to process the advertisements we see every day. In the ease of mental processing, often gets mistaken for actually liking that toothpaste, aftershave, or insurance company. In contrast, Nordheim felt that if she asked or found that if she asked respondents to examine these same ads carefully, the creative curve kicked in. After viewing an advertisement ten times, the participants reported liking the underlying products less and less with each viewing. When you process things deeply, you take time to evaluate them, and your competing emotions involving familiarity and novelty come into play. Deep processing takes place either because you are intentionally paying close attention to something, or because the object or concept is inherently complex and requires more than normal processing. For example, abstract art demands significant mental processing by its audience because of its multifaceted nature there is both explicit and implicit meaning, and is therefore subject to the creative curve. But the creative curve isn't just an academic tool. It provides a practical framework for navigating the tension between the pursuit of both the familiar and the novel. Put simply, it is the very real foundation of mainstream success. The question remains, how do some creative people achieve consistent success at creating ideas in the sweet spot? How are they able to come come up with one idea after another that sits to the left of the point of cliché with optimal odds of becoming a hit. To answer this, let's go back to Paul McCartney and the Beatles. The math behind the Beatles. It was 1965 and Beatlemania was in full bloom. And while McCartney toiled to finish yesterday, and the other Beatles were seeking ways to grow artistically while under a burdensome microscope of global fame, George Harrison thought he had found an outlet on the set of their film, Help. The movie's plot pokes fun at the idea of an Eastern cult that was vaguely Indian. It was in this setting that George Harrison made a discovery that changed pop music. In one scene, which takes place in an overdone Indian restaurant, a group of musicians begin serenading the diners using traditional Far Eastern instruments. At one point, during production, Harrison picked up one of the prop instruments. It was a sitar, a 12 stringed instrument that resembles the guitar. The sitar was well known across India, but completely new to Harrison. Ironically, at the same time that the Beatles were making fun of Indian culture in Help, Harrison be- became intrigued by the mesmerizing twang and sheer foreignness of the sitar. Seeking as ever to build his own identity within the group and continue to grow artistically, Harrison came to the conclusion that the sitar could bring about some much-needed change for himself, both musically and personally. Back in London, he bought his first-ever sitar at Indiacraft on Oxford Street. That October, the Beatles got stuck completing a new song called Norwegian Wood for an album they planned on calling Rubber Soul. Finally, they thought to try out Harrison's new sitar, The Melody Clicked. Today, Norwegian Wood is remembered as the first mainstream Western song to feature a sitar, but not the last. As the song gained popularity, the sitar began popping up elsewhere. Sorry. In 1966, the Rolling Stones used it in their hit song, Paint It Black, solidifying the instrument's new role in rock music. By 1967, the sitar craze was sweeping pop music. Dan Electro went so far as to release an electric version, known as the choral electric sitar. This version of the sitar was accessible to many musicians. It was strung like a guitar, but it had the recognizable twang of an actual sitar. The trend kept going and more pop musicians began incorporating the instrument, ranging from Elvis Presley to the Mamas and the Papas. That same year, Harrison met Ravi Shankar, one of the godfathers of Indian music and a master of the sitar, who eventually agreed to teach Harrison how to play the instrument. Shankar, on tour in 1967 during the sitar craze, told an interviewer that the sitar is now the in-thing, all of which he credited to the Beatles in Harrison's abrupt obsession with a movie prop. Quote, many people, especially young people, have started listening to sitar since George Harrison, one of the Beatles, became my disciple, quote. The Beatles had lit the match, but the ensuing fire consumed musicians everywhere. As it threatened to burn higher and higher, the Beatles began cutting back on the sitar. It ended up just being one of many new sounds the band used during the more exp- their more experimental years. The sitar craze is a powerful example of the calculus behind the creative curve any Beatles fan knows that there were distinct phases to their musical career. Many Beatles historians would classify them into three eras, the early years, which were dominated by a pop sound, the experimental years, when their music became more psychedelic and sonically oriented, and the later years, which represented a return to the pop basics. Pres- Professor Tuomas Areola, or Erola, at Durham University researches empirical musicology. Put simply, he studies the quantitative characteristics of music, such as how many beats a song contains or the frequency of note repetition. In the late 1900s, he set out to understand whether the Beatles' phases were truly distinct. Did the phases in their music suddenly stop and start, or were the shifts gradual, slowly evolving between albums? To study this, he examined, among other things, the Beatles' use of tone repetition, descending bass lines, and exotic instruments like the sitar. He then measured the use of these features in every Beatles song ever recorded. What he found was that the Beatles used these experimental features with an increasing and then decreasing frequency. When Irola created a chart showing this change over time, you can probably guess by now what shape he saw. A bell-shaped curve distribution. The Beatles' usage of experimental song features matched the creative curve. The band slowly introduced an increasing number of experimental approaches and sounds in their music as their audience grew to like them, then stopped using them as their audience risked risked becoming overexposed to these sounds. Part of the Beatles' creative genius was their ability to write songs that mirrored how their audience built new musical tastes, which follows the creative curve. The band wrote and released songs that were familiar yet just novel enough to expose their audience to new concepts that listeners would slowly learn to like. Then, once these elements reached the the point of cliché, the Beatles sharply curtailed their use. Imagine what would have happened if instead of reducing these musical features once they reached cliché, the Beatles had continued. Their fans would have begun to get bored and might have drifted away to other bands. In the worst-case scenario, the Beatles might have become a cliché themselves. The creative curve provides the framework to explain how the Beatles could bring new ideas to the market and find success without carrying those ideas too far or staying with them for too long. This has critical implications for any type of creator. For example, one way to slow down the effects of the curve is to slow down exposure. This is why many luxury brands focus on exclusivity, maximizing price to grow revenues rather than distribution. The only other way to avoid the curve is to make your product addictive. Think of the staying power of coffee or certain video games. Yet, how did the Beatles know how much sitar to use in their music? Alternatively, how did Mark Zuckerberg know which features to take away from the earliest versions of Facebook? Here is where my interviews became critical. I sat down with dozens of successful creatives from numerous fields, my goal is to understand how they managed to generate one idea after another at the sweet spot of the creative curve. Since we all have creative potential and extreme IQ genius is not a requirement for creating hits, I wanted to map out these individuals as creative process. What were they doing that the rest of us should consider replicating? I asked these people questions about their childhoods, how they conceived of new ideas, how they turned those ideas into reality and how they promoted them once they were done. I often felt like a shrink, especially since I conducted a lot of interviews on couches. People invited me into their homes, their offices and their favorite restaurants. When we couldn't meet in person, we would chat over the phone or Skype. In the end, it turned out that many of the stories I heard were similar. Ultimately, I discovered four patterns that creators use to come up with ideas that are optimized for commercial success. These methods were also supported by a variety of sciences, ranging from psychology to sociology to neuroscience. I call these the four laws of the creative curve. Over the next four chapters, I'll break down each one and explain how we can apply all of them to our own work. We will start by discussing how to identify great ideas. And, as you will soon see, it all begins with a trip to Arizona. Thank you for watching, please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.